0: Chapter 12 is a turning point in the Gospel of John. It's in this chapter that the author describes the end of Jesus' public ministry. But before Jesus ducks out of the public eye, John ties together several of the themes he's developed thus far in his Gospel. It's a continuation of Jesus calling his sheep away from the temple ministry, and it's a further identification of his other flock. Welcome to episode 17, A Voice from Heaven. This is Greg Hall and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at John chapter 12. It's a literary turning point in John's gospel because up until now, it's been about Jesus's public ministry. And the next several chapters have to do with the last supper event and then his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we all know where that leads. So this is the end of the public ministry, and you would expect some concluding statements and or some events that kind of summarize the first half of John's gospel. You would expect John to coordinate his gospel that way, and that's exactly what John gives us. It's a chaotic scene that brings many of the book's themes together very nicely, and we'll be focusing largely on the last section of the chapter, verses 20 through 50. And we'll see that it's a further example of the playing out of the two sheep pens of John chapter 10. So if you haven't listened to episode 15 of the podcast, I suggest you go back and listen to that one first. It'll help make this episode make a lot more sense. Because what we'll see is that in this chapter, some of the people are his sheep. They hear his voice, they recognize it, but some do not recognize the shepherd's voice and they do not follow him. And it turns out that the raising of Lazarus was an important turning point. And Jesus used that event to attract as much attention as possible to his cause. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we find out in verses 10 and 11 that because of the resuscitation of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away from the temple ministry, we can assume, and believing in Jesus. And after Jesus rides into town on a donkey, it tells us that many of those who greeted him did so because they had heard about the Lazarus event. Literally, in verse 11, it says, because on the account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And then there's another statement at the end of the next pericope, where the Pharisees say to one another in verse 19, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So in verse 11, the Jews are going after him, and the progression of Jesus' ministry is that it's not just the Jews, but in verse 19, it's the entire world. And it's that statement that is followed up with an example of what does it look like for the world to follow after Jesus. And that begins in verse 20 when we see a group of Greeks. Now, most commentators just say that the use of the term Greek here has nothing to do with their country of origin, that likely it's just a way to say a non-Jew. But there was a group of Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the Passover. And they came to Philip, and they began to ask him, saying, We wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. A lot of the commentaries will point out that Philip and Andrew, of the 12 disciples, are the only two that have Greek names. So it's likely that this group of Greeks gravitated to the disciples that they knew were close to Jesus, but also that had a Greek name. And so Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. What did they tell him? They told him, there, there's a group of Greek people wanting to come and meet you. And I've always thought that Jesus's response was a little weird. It just plain out says, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. It almost seems that Jesus sort of dismisses their request The next few verses are said to them, and we're not sure who them is, but the most recent antecedent is Andrew and Philip, the two disciples that come to Jesus. So the real question is, did Jesus just ignore this group of Greeks, or did he ever get back to them at all? But it is possible that the them in verse 23 refers to all of them, not just Philip and Andrew. I found this in the handbook on the Gospel of John by Newman and Nida, They say about this context, there is no specific indication of what persons are referred to by them. However, this pronoun should not be so rendered as to indicate that Jesus would speak only to Philip and Andrew and so reject an opportunity to talk with the Greeks. They go on to say, It is best to imply in translation that Jesus' words were directed to all who were there, including the Greeks. So with that perspective— Jesus's answer makes a little more sense. Group of Greeks come, they want to worship during the feast at the temple. That's not very common, by the way, for a non-Jew to end up at the temple during a feast or a festival with the intent of worshiping as a part of that festival. As a reader, you've got to be asking the question, why would they even show up? But if you've been following John's hints all along the way in the first 11 chapters of his gospel, you know that it's not just people from the Jewish heritage that find their way to faith in Jesus. We've seen it earlier in John's gospel, and we'll see it many times again as the New Testament plays out. The Gentiles are Jesus's other flock. And it's Jesus's purpose to combine true believers together into one flock, regardless of their ethnicity or their cultural context. He is creating a new flock, and that is the central theme of Jesus's ministry. And here in John chapter 12, as Jesus is closing out his public ministry, what John the author is doing is he's setting the stage to show the reader how this is playing out in real time. I believe what John is doing is literally collecting believing Jews and Gentiles together in one place for one specific reason to hear the shepherd's voice. we've seen Jesus talking to Jewish crowds at a feast earlier in John's gospel. That was in John chapter 8. You can go back verses 25 to 34 and read that interaction that Jesus has with the crowd in Jerusalem. And what you'll see is that there's a dual response that Jesus gets. Some people are hearing him for what he's saying and coming to faith in him. And some of the people at the feast do not hear his voice, do not accept what he is saying, and do not recognize him as their shepherd. So we've seen it before earlier in the gospel. In John chapter 10, we have the idea of more fully developed with Jesus's metaphor. He is the shepherd and as the gate of two different sheepfolds. He's bringing the remnant out of the temple ministry in the first sheepfold, and then he takes them out to pasture and he invites anyone to come in through him as the gate of the new sheepfold. Remember Jesus said in verse 16 of chapter 10, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And what's interesting is we actually have the voice of the shepherd, not just Jesus, but the Old Testament shepherd. It's God's voice himself. God the Father shows up in this chapter. And it's not a new thing. We've seen this before if we've read the other gospels. Again, out of the handbook of the Gospel of John with Newman and Nida, they say, according to the Synoptic Gospels, a voice spoke from heaven at these different events. Jesus' baptism, you can read about that in Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and also a second time from a cloud at Jesus' transfiguration. You can read about that in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And if you follow it out of the Gospels and into the rest of the New Testament, We also have God's voice showing up in Acts 11, verse 7, and then again in Revelation 10, verse 4. Both of those mention voices speaking from heaven. And Newman and Nida suggest that in each one of these New Testament instances, the voice from heaven is understood as the directly heard voice of God. And I just want to point out some structure that shows up as we start talking about this voice from heaven. The first one that we read about in the Gospels is early in Jesus' ministry. It's when Jesus commenced his career. It's at his baptism. The next time that we hear a voice out of heaven is a different turning point in his ministry. It's his transfiguration. It's kind of a turning point in the ministry where he's identified for who he is, and it's hard for the disciples to unsee that. And then John includes it here in chapter 12 of his Gospel. And this is at the end of the public ministry. So we have some bookends, and we have one account in the middle where we hear a voice out of heaven that is assumed to be the very voice of God the Father. But it's something here in John chapter 12 that I'd really like to point out. It's when that voice spoke out of heaven. It was misunderstood by the crowd as thunder. Let me just read that out of verse 28. And Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd, and we want to identify the crowd because there's going to be an exception to the crowd a little bit later, but the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Now, in the Old Testament, the voice of God is often attached to thunder, We're to understand it as a big booming voice. But here, the response isn't necessarily that thunder accompanied the voice. The crowd seems to not understand what the voice is saying. They thought that it had only thundered, like a storm was coming in. But then of the second half of verse 29 says others were saying, others maybe in the crowd or uh, separate from the crowd of people that thought it had thundered, Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. I want to just examine that. Some of the commentaries suggest that both sets of people didn't understand what was being said. But I think the most plain way of reading this text is that a voice came out of heaven. Some in the crowd didn't understand it as a voice. They didn't hear the voice. But some in the crowd understood it as a voice, and they understood what was said. Jesus follows up the voice with this in verse 30. This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And it just seems to me if nobody in the crowd understood it as a voice, that statement of Jesus would make absolutely no sense. But that voice came for the sake of the people in the crowd. Why? Because it's going to identify his sheep and who are not of his flock. And it's not Jesus's voice this time identifying them. It's very God himself, the voice from heaven. I think from this dual response that we get from this voice, the crowd and others in the crowd, coming to two different conclusions should lead us to conclude that something spiritual is at work in this scene. There are some other times in scripture that voices cause a dual response just like this, where some people understand the voice of the shepherd and others do not. So I'm not going to take too much time with it in this episode, but one of the projects I'm working on at RethinkingScripture.com is a Rethinking Babel project. If you visit the website, you can click on Rethinking Projects and you can read a little bit more about it. But another situation that we see in the scriptures where we see a dual response with voices speaking where the Spirit's at work is in Acts chapter 2. The devout men of the crowd that day heard the disciples' voices and understood them in their own native tongues. But there was a dual response at the temple that day too and it's often completely ignored by the commentators and we find it in acts chapter 2 verse 13 where it says but others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine so in acts chapter 2 the spirit is at work voices are going out and some of the crowd understand those voices completely In verse 11 of Acts 2, it says, We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. It's very specific. But others in the crowd, verse 13, were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. In other words, some in the crowd completely understood what they were saying and recognized it as praise to God. Others in the crowd thought they were drunk. And it's not because they didn't understand the language. If I'm in a crowd and I hear somebody speaking another language that I don't understand, my conclusion isn't that they're drunk. My conclusion would be, oh, they're speaking another language that I don't understand. The only way I'm going to come to the conclusion that somebody is drunk is if what they're saying makes absolutely no sense to me at all. We have a voice directed by the Spirit of God, and a dual response in Acts chapter 2. But there's another time that there's a dual response. It's in Paul's road to Damascus story. If you remember, Paul heard a voice from heaven and understood it in his native Hebrew tongue. But those traveling with him, who, by the way, spoke the same Hebrew dialect, heard the voice, but didn't understand what it was saying. We get that information directly from Paul when he retells the story later in Acts chapter 22. These spiritual voices, whether it be speaking in tongues, that gift, or voices from heaven, they are the focus of the Rethinking Babel Project, one of the projects that's outlined, again, in more detail at rethinkingscripture.com. So if you've ever been confused by the whole topic of speaking in tongues, whether you're from that tradition or not from that tradition at all, odds are you're somewhat confused. We have not done a great job of diving into the theology of what's going on when the Holy Spirit's involved with communication and voices. And I'm working to develop a biblical theology of Babel. And I look forward to presenting it soon, right here on the podcast. So as John has crafted the end of Jesus's public ministry, he's let us know that the resuscitation of Lazarus has brought not just many Jews to believing in Jesus, but in the words of the Pharisees in verse 19, the whole world has gone after him. And we see that displayed in real time with this group of Greeks that come and seek Jesus and his comments back to them. And then to the whole crowd, this crowd that's symbolized by Jews and Gentiles alike, a voice comes out of heaven and speaks, and there's a dual response to that. Those that understood the voice that day were likely those that had already come to faith in God the Father and were extending their already existent faith on to the Messiah, the man of Jesus. But what of the others in the crowd that day? What of the ones that listened to the voice from heaven and concluded that it had only thundered. How are we to understand them? And in the rest of the chapter, we have the words of Jesus recorded. And in those words, we can understand how we are to approach those in the crowd that day that did not understand who Jesus was. It was not a condition that had been placed upon them that they could not change. In fact, Jesus follows up the statement, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes, in verse 30, with this, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And again in verse 35, Jesus says to the crowd that did not understand who he was, he says for a little while longer, the light is among you walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And I believe Jesus is saying to the crowd that day, even though you may not recognize me right now, something very soon will happen that will be a bright light cast upon a dark situation. And even those that did not see him in his public ministry for who he was as the Messiah would then have an opportunity to believe in the light and become sons of light. They would be those that entered into the second sheepfold out in pasture and enter through the gate of Jesus. But that's not all that the text says about this part of the crowd that didn't understand who he was at that moment. In fact, John the author brings in two quotes from Isaiah the prophet out of the Old Testament, and one of those is often quoted in the New Testament. And it's a confusing quote if you don't understand the context. So we're just going to dive into the quote out of Isaiah in verses 39 and 40. We're going to visit its original context just a little bit to see why it is that the New Testament authors often used Isaiah chapter 6 in their New Testament texts. So let's just read verse 39, and it's referring to that part of the crowd that day. They had seen Jesus. They had listened to him. They had heard the voice out of heaven, but did not recognize it for anything more than thunder. And then John adds this, For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And without understanding the context of the Old Testament verse, it may seem like this is a God who just imposes his will on people and they have no ability to do anything opposing that will. But that's not the original context of Isaiah 6. Before we dive back into the Old Testament, though, I do want to point out that this Isaiah 6 passage is either quoted or alluded to in several places in the New Testament. We see it as the explanation in the parable of the sower and the seeds in all three of the synoptic gospels. That's in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, and Luke 8. It's in the parable of the sower where the disciples ask, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus's response is this response out of Isaiah 6. It's also quoted in Acts 28 verses 26 and 27 where Paul tries to convince the Jews in Rome about who Jesus is. It says that Paul was testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And here's the dual response. Verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Isaiah chapter 6, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but not perceive. And obviously, that Isaiah 6 passage in Acts 28 is spoken to those that were listening to Paul and not coming to faith in Jesus. It's just another example of that dual response that we see also here in Acts chapter 12. And you might have always read that passage as some sort of a predetermined judgment that God casts on certain people, that God causes certain people to not understand spiritual things. And that's a very common way that some people understand those quotes of Isaiah chapter 6 in the New Testament. to turn now to the work of dr gregory Beale. we've discussed some of his work in previous episodes and he has a book titled we become what we worship a biblical theology of idolatry and he has done a remarkable job outlining the original context of the isaiah 6 passage and in that work he suggests why it's quoted so often in the new testament and I'll post a couple links in the show notes to the, not just the book, but a couple audio files of Dr. Beale talking about his findings. And let me just say, it is a fascinating study. And I will just summarize it in short here in the podcast, but I would just really encourage you, if you've ever been intrigued by the quotes of Isaiah chapter 6 in the New Testament, Dr. Beale just does an outstanding job of going back to the original context and pointing out why the New Testament authors repeat it so often. So in short, the prophet Isaiah is commissioned by God to go preach to an Israel that has been following idols. Specifically, these are people who created wood carvings of false gods, and then they worshiped them. And it's those wooden idols that were given ears, literally ears carved into the wood. But obviously, as idols to false gods, those ears couldn't hear. And it's those same idols that have been given eyes, carved in with a knife by the people, and then worshiped. But those eyes of the idol obviously couldn't see, not only in the physical realm, they couldn't see spiritual things as well, the things that the people worshiping those idols were hoping to gain insight about. And then God said to Isaiah, the people had become just like that which they were worshiping. The Israelites had eyes just like their idols, but they too couldn't see spiritual things. They had ears, but they couldn't hear the voice of God. Because of their idol worship, and this is the message coming out of Isaiah the prophet and other Old Testament passages that Beal outlines nicely, the people of Israel worshiping idols had become just like those idols. Then in Isaiah Chapter 6, verse 11, the prophet asks, how long will this be the case? How long will these people have eyes but not see and have ears but not hear? And God says that Israel would be taken into captivity, which was the Babylonian captivity. But after that, a portion would come back into the land. And the Isaiah passage suggests that even those that return will still have this same Condition. They would be idol worshippers that are deaf and blind to the things of God. So when Isaiah 6 is quoted here in John chapter 12 and in all of the other New Testament passages, the authors are pointing out that the spiritual condition of Israel there in the first century had been predicted back in the prophet Isaiah's time. The first century temple leadership had replaced true worship with some other form of idol worship. And because of that, they too had become spiritually blind and deaf, just like their ancestors. So just like Isaiah the prophet, Jesus had come as a prophet to Israel, and his words and miracles helped confirm the spiritual state of many in the land. Remember verse 37 that says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And it's that quote that confirms that the response that God gave to Isaiah to his question about how long will the spiritual blindness last, God's response was, it will survive past the captivity in Babylon, past a remnant coming back into the land, and even those people will have a similar condition. And the New Testament authors are pointing that fact out. But the chapter doesn't end on that down note, on the note that there were so many people not believing in Jesus, even though they still even had a hope of coming to faith. This is how the chapter ends. Let me just read some of it, starting in verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, Many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And you might be tempted to believe, or you may have been taught to think about that type of faith. A faith in Jesus that loves the approval of men rather than the approval of God is not a genuine faith. But listen to what Jesus says following that statement by John the author. Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me. Now, this is following two verses earlier where many of the rulers, those that love the approval of men as well, are described as believing in him. Now, listen to what Jesus says about even those people. He who believes in me, even you rulers who are fearful to say it out loud, even you do not believe in me, but in him who sent me. That is the origin of their faith. You don't have people here coming to an initial faith in Jesus. It is an extension of an already existent faith in the one who sent Jesus. Jesus continues in verse 45. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Not just you folks that come to faith as a transfer of an existing faith, but he came into the world even for those who weren't recognizing who he was at that moment. So even they will not remain in darkness. And to further back up that idea that those coming to believe in Jesus at this moment in his ministry— Already had an existing faith in God the Father before, he says this. Verse 49, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is why you can have a whole group, a remnant group of believers in the land, that when they hear Jesus' voice, their faith in God the Father is kindled because Jesus is not bringing a new initiative. He is the voice of the Father And we should expect a dual response, not because of some choosing of God, but we should expect a dual response that reflects the condition of their heart before they heard the words of Jesus. One continuing in faith and one continuing in rejection. Well, that's all I've got for today. And just remember that at RethinkingScripture.com, you'll find lots more about Voices from Heaven in the Rethinking Babel Project. You can look for it under the Rethinking Projects tab. In the next episode, we'll move on into the upper room and the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. And we'll ask what role foot washing should have among believers today. Would you be surprised if I suggested it may have nothing to do with touching someone else's feet? Again, thanks for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.